Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you in worship. Uh, our family did spend a night out with uh, much of the rest of our congregation camping, and it was, it was very wet uh, and rainy, although the sun did come out on Saturday. I think everyone was having a great time, and they're actually having a worship service there as, as we worship, so I will pray for them in a moment. If you're new to in-town, you haven't been uh, here very long, we're finishing up a series in Genesis called The Beginning of All Things. And this morning we're looking at chapter 50 as we wrap up our study. This is our Old Testament reading. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days. For that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived a hundred and ten years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at the birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you are the mighty God who guides our lives with mercy and love. You are holy, you are perfect, your grace is boundless and free. Would you make room in our hearts to hear your word this morning, to receive the message of grace that is contained in them, we're here from many different backgrounds. Many of us are followers. We're ready to worship. We're ready to hear from you. We want to be with you. Others are struggling. We're worried. We're anxious. and We need you to stoop into our lives in a new way to embrace us and remind us of your love and to give us rest from our fear. Some of us are confused and cynical or skeptical that this means anything at all. And we need something authentic, and true. Lord, I pray that you would be that for us. And what is common among us is that we were made to know and to, to worship you. 
and that we are here by no accident, just as you have guided Joseph's story, that now, many thousands of years later, we believe that you guide ours, and I pray that you would make that real to us, that you would make yourself present and known to all of us, wherever we are coming from and whatever questions that we have. Would you be with our brothers and sisters who are not present with us this morning who are worshiping you at the campground in uh, Shampooey State Park? We pray that you would give them new friendships, build community as you let them worship in such a different setting. We thank you that we can worship you wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Steve gave us a rather lengthy overview of the last number of chapters of Genesis last week. And we're covering, we're having to jump ahead a number of chapters because we actually spent a great deal of time on Jacob, although his son Joseph takes up about 14 chapters that rounds out the end of Genesis. And Joseph is one of 12 sons, and he's the favored child and is a bit arrogant about it. His dad buys him this flamboyant coat of many colors, and he wears it everywhere. He wears it very proudly. He wears it even in the middle of the day as his father sends him out to check on his brothers. In the middle of the Middle Eastern sun, he wears this jacket. And they're not very fond of Joseph, and they hatch a plan to have him killed off. But instead, he's sold into slavery. And then the brothers go tell Father Jacob, with this bloody coat that they've spilled blood on, that, oh, perhaps your son was killed by a wild animal, and Jacob is just destroyed. Now, eventually, Joseph does get to Egypt, and he's working as a house manager for a guy named Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And his wife tries to seduce him, and the, but the plan fails. And so Mrs. Potiphar is incensed, and she claims that it was the other way around, and, that, and therefore Joseph is thrown into prison. But as we saw earlier in this narrative, he has this gift for interpreting dreams, not only his own dreams, which gets him into trouble, but even Pharaoh's dreams, which gets him out of prison. And when Pharaoh has a weird dream, he calls for Joseph, and that's the instance that Joseph begins to rise to power as Pharaoh's second in command. Now, the brothers eventually travel to Egypt. They think Joseph is long gone and dead. They travel because there's a famine that's taken over the land, and they meet with Joseph to plead for help, but they don't know that it's him. Now, eventually he reveals himself, as we read, and Jacob joins them in Egypt, and they all live happily ever after. That's the backdrop to what we just read, but there's a lot that we need to fill in the blanks. The last chapter of Genesis in the series that we've been calling the beginning of all things is the capstone to that story. It's the capstone to the beginning of all things. That this story, the whole book of Genesis has been telling us that God is a God of new beginnings. And this story is the capstone for how he's begun to make things right. He's begun a work of redemption in the world, taking our mistakes and our failures and sin and recasting them in light of a new story, a story of his gracious work and his power. So we're going to look at redemption in three acts here with three different people. Jacob, the father, one last time, the brothers, and then finally Joseph. 
Now let's look at Jacob. Jacob has died as we read in this passage. But before he dies, he gives to Joseph this wish. And so Joseph goes to Pharaoh and asks Pharaoh that he be allowed to honor Jacob's dying wish, that he would be buried in the tomb that he had dug for himself in the land of Canaan. Genesis has been pointing us, pointing us over and over to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, that this is where, in a very specific place, that God's promises that his redemption of the whole world will begin to take shape. But now the chosen family finds itself in Egypt, and they'll be there stuck for 400 years. And there's some foreshadowing going on here by the narrator, because As Joseph goes to Pharaoh to plead that his father be allowed to go, his father be allowed to go back to Canaan, there's even chariots and there's horsemen that are involved in this story. It's much like what is coming in this fuller exodus that will come. But it's more than just foreshadowing because it's a glimpse of what's taken place in Jacob's life, how he has changed in these many years that we've been looking at him. Jacob has never been one to put his trust fully in the promises of God. Instead, it's been a life of cheating, a life of conniving, a life of moral choices that are very questionable, all meant to further his own story. And now, very subtly, the narrator is telling us that Jacob has finally realized that he's living in God's story. The promises that his family has been given or to be played out in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise, and that's where he wants to go. That's where he wants to be buried. Even though his family, his possessions are now located in Egypt, and they will be for quite some time, he asks, can I be buried in Canaan, where God's promises, the work of his future redemption, will unfold. God's story has finally become his story. Now, Alistair McIntyre, who is one of the most prominent, well-known philosophers of the 20th century, calls humans the storytelling animal. He says, how are we to navigate through life? The choices we make, the way we respond, is determined by what story we believe ourselves to be in. We can't answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I have already answered a prior question of which story am I a part We all make decisions based upon the story that we see ourselves to be a part of. We make decisions and choices in life based upon what we want to see unfold in our story in the future. And the question that this person's story leads us to ask is, what story are you living by? What story captivates you? What's the climax of your story? And this is one of the main questions of Genesis that it's been asking us explicitly and implicitly over and over. What story are you living by? Is the climax of your story the future prestige for yourself? It's finding a career. It's finding a mate that will bring you exceeding comfort and bring you, maybe more importantly, the esteem of others. Is that the story that you're living by? Or maybe It's inverse of that, which is more prominent in Portland. It's that the story, our story, revolves around finding adequate time and adequate funding for our hobbies and our recreation. And because we build our identity and our sense of self-worth and our comfort on our recreation and on our hobbies, they then 
become work. These are the stories that determine our daily choices. And Genesis has been painting for us an alternative story, telling us an alternative, uh, painting an alternative picture and telling an alternative story. And it's a story of God who is personally invested in and guiding providentially and powerfully the story of the world as well as your story. And this is incredibly liberating and a little terrifying. On one hand, we can have the assurance that we can entrust our story to a God who is kind, who is good, who is invested in the outcome of our story and is committed to our good. There's assurance. And so there's part of this that's greatly liberating, but it's also very terrifying because on the other hand, it tells us that all of our plans are provisional, that all of our plans are subject to review, that His purposes transpire in ways that supersede ours, and that therefore they often feel disjointed from what we think is best for us at the moment. In other words, it's terrifying to realize that our story is important to God, but it's not the only story. That our story is framed in reference to the larger story that God is telling throughout human history. That's something we can learn from Jacob. What about Joseph's brothers? They've come down to Egypt and they seek relief from famine, but when they meet Joseph, he acts very strangely towards them. Now, we would expect that after all that they had put him through, that they had assigned him to death, and that slavery was actually salvation, in a sense, from that death, we could expect that, well, he would just execute them, and that would be poetic justice. Or, on the other hand, he would forgive them, and we'd have a very inspiring story, and it either makes for a very good story. But instead, what does Joseph do? He hatches this elaborate scheme, which I didn't read to you, of sending them back and forth to Canaan with different objectives. He accuses them when they first come of being spies, and he puts them in jail. And then he tells them to go back to Canaan and get Benjamin. Who is Benjamin? Well, that's his only full brother. He's the youngest now, and he is Jacob's full brother from their mother, Rachel. And he tells them that he's going to hold Simeon, one of the other brothers, in jail until they come back. He's going to hold him as a guarantee. Now, how do they respond? This is verse 21 of chapter 44. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And he turned from them and began to weep. It sounds like a bit of regret. It sounds like remorse. Maybe a bit of repentance. Have these murderers changed over the years? Now Benjamin has now become a sort of replacement for Joseph. He's become Jacob's new favorite after Joseph was presumed dead. So he doesn't want Benjamin to be let go. But he finally relents and gives in when Judah, one of the other brothers, personally guarantees his safety. So they return to Egypt. 
Now, as they sit before Joseph, now this very powerful figure in Egypt, he wines and dines them. He gives them this great time, but he makes a very concerted effort to treat Benjamin as special. He gives them five times the amount of food. And then he sends them back again to Egypt to get their father. Second trip. And he puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag and then has his steward track them down on their way back in the middle of the desert and accuse them of theft. When they're accused, of course, Pharaoh holds all the cards. He has all the power. Joseph has all the power. And so they, they, when they're accused, they rashly promise death to the person who would take it, not knowing that it's in Benjamin's bag. Of course, how could we treat you badly, Pharaoh? Look at what you've done to us. Joseph, it seems, is stirring these old jealousies, testing them to see if they're the same petty, murderous bunch that sold him into slavery 20 years ago. But it seems that in the background, that as God has been guiding Joseph's story, that he's also been at work in these brothers' story as well. When caught, they have every incentive to give Benjamin up. They can go free, and they don't. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. It's an incredible admission when you know these brothers' story and you know how petty and violent they've been willing to be to get their way. They don't begrudge this miscarriage of justice because they recognize their guilt in a much graver matter. And so therefore, they don't say, Joseph has found us out or Pharaoh has found us out. They say, God has found us out. I've shared with you before about a billboard that I grew up near in Alabama, and it was on Interstate 65, and so I drove by it every time I would go to college. And it's just off the interstate, and it has this big red cartoonish portrait of Satan with red horns and a pitchfork and everything. And it says, go to church or the devil will get you. I've wanted to paint over that sign for so many years, even if I was arrested for vandalism because of what that would convey about, about the church. There's a, another sign, and this one's in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and it's a neon cross, and written on the cross it says, Sin will find you out. Now, neither of these signs are probably bringing people to church in droves, right? But I like the second one much better. Go to church or the devil will get you is another way of saying behave or God will get you. Stay in line or God will punish you. The other one implies, however, that sin has its own consequences, that sin is its own punishment. These brothers are reaping what they've sown. They've seen that sin is its own punishment. They've been petty, jealous, murderous, but they're not sociopaths. Imagine what it would have been like to live for these 20 years along with 11 other brothers trying to cover up a murder, a presumed murder, that destroys your family and crushes your father. 
How many times did they have to gather together and huddle together because one of them was going to come clean and convince that person, no, we've got to stick by the story? How terrible would it be to be haunted like that unless you were crazy, unless you were a sociopath, which these brothers clearly aren't. They've carried the weight of the murder of their brother for 20 years. And it's almost like as a group, they all decide at one time to come clean. What we see here is that grace doesn't always feel like grace. In fact, grace often feels like an anvil. They've tried to write their own story. It involved jealousy, competition, and it involved death. But in God's story, His persistent grace has been wrestling with them for 20 years and it's finally pried away their hold over their personal guilt. And so therefore, instead of selling Benjamin out and going free, they decide to stand with him. And later in the palace, just a few verses later, what finally triggers Joseph's self-disclosure is when Judah pulls him aside and begs him, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. Then Joseph could no longer control himself and before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? The failure to live by God's story, by His promises, has resulted in destruction and carnage and hatred and death and competition and violence throughout the story of Genesis. And when we choose to live by our own stories, we're assuming two things. We're assuming that we know what's best for us at this very moment. And secondly, that we have the power to deliver that thing to ourselves. Genesis, told, Genesis has told us over and over that these assumptions not only are wrong, but that they're deadly. And even if you're not a Christian, you certainly have found that ensuring your own future can be a very tall order. That taking control over your own life can be a frustrating endeavor. But at the center of the Genesis story is not just a God who's saying don't, but it's a God who is rescuing people from these assumptions. It's not hubris on his part. It's not putting us in our place, but it's an act of mercy. It's not see, saying, see, I told you so. I told you this would happen. But it's son, daughter. Here's the way that the world works. And it's a father that's coming along tenderly and putting his arm around his son or daughter and saying, let me help you. Let me rescue you from your own bad choices. It's a father who's willing to incur the relational cost of an adoptive parent that looks down further in the story knowing that heartache will come, knowing the cost, and saying, yes, I will sign up for that. Yes, I'm willing to walk through the heartaches of life with this person because I love them desperately. And when this adoptive mercy gets under our skin it begins to change the way that we look at the, at his assertion of authority in our lives 
for Joseph, how has this worked? He's been able to give up his right to vindication. He's been able to give up his right to justice, to forego what anyone at that time would have thought of as justice, seeking revenge on his brothers. There would have been no complications because he was in power. And yet he's able to give it up. And Judah, who is Judah? Fourteen chapters are known as the Joseph narrative, but the narrator is crafty because he's had Judah as a sub-focal point the whole time. And it's him who models and foreshadows the coming Messiah, the promise that each of these family members would have put their trust in, put their hope in, longing for the Messiah to come. It's him who foreshadows it. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, not Joseph. Judah comes to Joseph and he offers his life as a ransom for Benjamin. Just like Jesus will come and offer his life as a ransom for you and I. The adoptive mercy of God has gotten under Judah's skin to where he's willing to lay down his life for his brother. Whereas just 20 years earlier, they were all ready to kill him. And now he wants to give his life up for Benjamin. Now let's look finally at Joseph. Wendell Berry has this amazing story novel called Jaber Crow. And he says, one of the characters, Jaber, says, I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I have been very much in charge of my life. I have made plans enough, but to see now that I have never lived by plan, nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise, and whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had time to expect it. And so when I have thought that I was in my story or in charge of it, I really have only been on the edge of it, carried along. Is this because we are in an eternal story that is happening only partly in time? It must have felt like that to Joseph through these 20 years going from prison to power, that he's inhabited a larger story. And he says in the passage I read earlier that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And this is a primary text, this primary story to talk about God's mysterious providence. And Joseph has learned through many years of difficulty and great success to trust in God and hope in His promises and to live in His story rather than in Joseph's alone. The brothers had this scheme that they wanted to play out to benefit themselves. And in the midst of it, however, was God. But these old habits die hard for the brothers because when Jacob is dead, they wonder, can they trust Joseph to keep his word not to harm him? Has he just been keeping his hands off of them because of Jacob's wish and Jacob's presence? And now Jacob's gone. Joseph has all the power and holds all the cards. Will he exact justice on them? And it's another way of asking, would they keep their word if the circumstances were reversed? And so they concoct this lie. They put words in Jacob's mouth and they take them to Joseph and request that, uh, a request that Jacob never made. And they bow down to Joseph. It's like the dream that, they, that Joseph had many years earlier that brought them great suspicion and great jealousy. 
that they would one day bow down to him. But you see, the significance of that dream of bowing down is very different from what they envisioned when he first told it to them because it doesn't lead to their enslavement, but it leads to their freedom. And it's the very thing that the narrator of Genesis has been trying to tell us all along. Just as that worked in Joseph's life, just as the brothers bowing down doesn't lead to enslavement but freedom, that's what it means, that's what it feels like, that's what it's like to bow down to God. Joseph has realized that they are characters in search of an author. And that in the midst of this tangled, tragic family history, that the author of life has been writing their story and that their role is simply to discover that author and then to trust him, to throw in their lot with the ultimate author, that he's been slowly, inscrutably, yet certainly bringing his promises to this family to fruition. And Joseph finally gets it. The purpose of this story hasn't been about him or his story primarily at all, but about God choosing a particular family to bring his redemptive work, to bring his blessing into all the world. It's not the concluding verse of Genesis, but it's certainly the conclusion nonetheless. Verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is creating a people who aren't chosen because they were specially qualified, because they were morally superior, because they were powerful, but to show how much God loves using weak things to carry out His mercy to other people. And Joseph gets this, and so then he's able to say, because of this realization, so then, brothers, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and spoke kindly to them. The brothers come to Joseph, in effect, to bargain for their lives, and Joseph says, wait, I'm not God. You're talking to me like I'm the author of the story. God is the author, and He's loving and gracious. So who am I to withhold that love and grace from you? So fear not. Don't be afraid. These characters have been characters in search of an author. Who's the author of your story? Who's writing your story? At the end of the day, this passage isn't about Joseph, despite the twists and turns that were very real and important to him and important to God. It's not primarily about all the characters that have come before in Genesis, but as the name implies, it's been about beginnings. The beginnings of a world gone wrong and how a gracious God is set about to set things right again. The salvation of the world is a family affair and it's begun inexplicably through this tiny little family full of strange, petty, promiscuous people. People like you and me. This family has no theological, no moral purchase on the future. Nevertheless, because of God's surprising, almost comedically abundant grace, they can engage the future as something even they can't render tragic. And friends, their hope is ours. For the story that we've been looking at is only the beginning. The God who takes their evil works and bends them into something beautiful is the one who will then send His Son 
And when he is killed unjustly, the son says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This story can only be the story of a cross, of a God who empties himself for those he loves, who feeds us with a feast of Christ's own crucified flesh and spilled blood. And in coming to this table, and in the act that makes this table, we can all be made to be heirs of that promise. Quite without contriving, quite without cheating, quite without trying to work off a debt, because God binds Himself to nobodies from nowhere with nothing and says, you are mine, so fear not. Let's pray. Father, I pray that no matter what we've been told about You in the past, no matter how many times we've seen Christians behaving badly, no matter how many times we've heard it implied that go to church or the devil will get you, that we would find in this worship service, that we would find in these words a gracious and loving and self-giving God who gives up His own Son on our behalf so that we could be made right and so that we could then be sent to bring Your blessing to others, to bring that word of grace, that word of love. Lord, we pray as we come to the table, as we confess our faith, that You would make that to be real for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.